Shalom, everyone. This is Zion Hebraic Congregation with me, Luke Tanner. Today's Shabbat message is from Mark chapter 15 and 16. Be sure to visit us at our website, zionhebraiccongregation.com. Also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Enjoy. Shalom. Mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does not me away. The soon is the day when we see your face on the mount of your grace and zero. Oh, zero. All right, good morning. Let's uh, this morning turn to. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. So just finished up actually reading Mark this morning. And because of that, we're going to end up speaking on uh, somewhat familiar ground, but I want to be a little bit more thorough about it. Um, but I don't want to mention what we'll end up with. So I, I, wanna, I do want to read, um, <coughs> excuse me, starting at verse 33 of chapter 15, and we'll read to the end of chapter 16. I don't really have a title for this. We're kind of just going to walk through it. Um, you know, so now <coughs> we're not going to follow any sort of outline or anything today, but what I, what I do for myself at times is I try to come up with uh, an outline for myself to just kind of pull it all together, whatever passage I'm looking at. And when it all starts with the same letter, what's that called when you're making an outline? Alliteration. And for me, that just always works. I don't know if that's because of the preachers that I like, other than Lester Roloff, who didn't <laughs> alliterate anything or probably have much of an outline, but was an awesome preacher anyway because he preached from his heart. But, you know, the preachers that I've, I've liked and probably were grew up on like you know the the study bibles uh my the pastor that we had when we were in college i also took bible classes from him uh jesse boyd he always alliterated everything and i just found it useful so anyway all that to say this so i uh i've split this up i'll, I'll just tell you what it is and then we'll read and i'll make comments along the way uh, but for me as i was going through this because verse 33 so is, is darkness. And then verse 34 is desertion. Um, then uh, verse 37 is death. Verse 38, division. Then we get into chapter 16, 1 through 8. That's deliverance. And then 9 through 20 is doubt. So that's kind of how I've broken it up. It's nothing hard and fast. But it just kind of helps me to keep a flow. I need a flow, especially... When there's a lot going on in a, in, a, in a few verses, although this isn't a few verses, but there's a lot going on. So darkness, desertion, death, division, deliverance, doubt. And, um, and again, we're not going to follow that pattern, but, uh, and maybe I'll mention it as we go along. But let, let's just read, and um, probably we'll just read it through, then go back to the beginning. All right, so Mark 15:33, And when the sixth, hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Yeshua cried with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So there's our desertion. God didn't desert him, but really that's the word there that we, that have for forsake. It's, it really is that where you just feel like more or less you're left behind everybody's gone off and left you and you're by yourself he, he really feels this sense of desertion which i, I find interesting All right and then verse 35 uh and some of them that stood by when they heard it said behold he calleth elias and one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it him to drink, saying, Let alone, 
Let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Yeshua cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. There's our death. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom. There's our division. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on afar off. Uh, among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the less, and of Joseph, and Salome, who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him, and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. And now, when the even was come, because it was a preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor, which also waited for the kingdom of God, came and went in boldly unto Pilate and craved the body of Yeshua. And Pilate marveled if he were already dead. We're still kind of dealing with a death theme here. Uh, in calling unto him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been any while dead. And when he knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he, uh, and he bought fine linen and took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in the sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock, and rolled a stone unto the door of the sepulcher. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph beheld where he was laid. Now we get into uh, deliverance, one through eight. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, had bought sweet spices that they might come and anoint him. And very early in the morning, the first day of the week, they came unto the sepulcher at the rising of the sun, and they said among themselves, Who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? And when they looked, they saw that the stone was rolled away, for it was very great. And entering into the sepulcher, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, clothed in a long white garment, and they were affrighted. And he saith unto them, Be not affrighted. Ye seek Yeshua of Nazareth, which was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. Behold the place where they laid him. But go your way, tell his disciples and Peter, that he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him as he said unto you. And they went out quickly and fled from the sepulcher, for they trembled and were amazed. Neither said they anything to any man, for they were afraid. Now we get into doubt. Now when Yeshua was risen early the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he cast out seven devils. And she went and told them that had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen of her, believed not. After that he appeared in another form unto two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it unto the residue. Neither believed they then. Afterward, he appeared unto the eleven as they sat at meat and upbraided them with their unbelief and hardness of heart because they believed not them which had seen him after he was risen. And he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. So then, after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. So, all right, just, just a few things that I was struck with. This thing in verse 33, darkness. Because um, as I've said before, I kind of I like to envision myself in the setting and try to encapsulate it. And so, you know, 
all of a sudden, I guess, or progressively, I'm not sure. But anyway, when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, <laughs> I don't really know what to make of that. You know, I've read so much over the years. You know, you can do your own study. But what I thought of as I was reading this yesterday and today was, you know, men love, we're told, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Now, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything, and this is just my thought, but my thought was like, all right, you guys like darkness, you want darkness, you're going to have some darkness. You know, it, it harkens back maybe to the darkness that was felt throughout all Egypt. I mean, so dark that what, doesn't it say they gnawed their tongues? I mean, I don't even know how to envision a darkness that is so dark that you feel absorbed in the darkness and totally lost. And um, so anyway, it, there's this darkness because of what Yeshua is going through on the behalf of all mankind. In a sense, the light that he was symbolically, figuratively, realistically, I don't know, it's just kind of going out. And without him, there's no light. <laughs> there's just darkness. And, and people have to be brought to the specific point in which they sense and know darkness. The darkness around them and the darkness within. Because our world, just like theirs, is full of darkness and men's hearts are full of darkness. But yet we, we don't recognize the darkness and want to live in our darkness until... God comes on the scene and shows, you want darkness? I'm going to show you how dark you really are. And that's what brings people to repentance. That's why a lot of the repentance and salvation experiences and is, is just, I don't think, true. Because what are we repenting of? We're repenting of our rebellion. We're repenting of our sin. The darkness that has engulfed us that we have loved. So anyway, so when Yeshua, from the, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth. And then in the midst of that, and, and I, you know, I don't know how to put flesh and blood to verse 34, but the ninth hour, Yeshua, with a loud voice, cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why are you deserting me? You know, where are you going? You know, in a sense, this isn't this is a bad illustration, but in a sense, he's that lost kid in the grocery store that can't find mom. You know, it, it, at that moment in time, there's this tangible aloneness that he undergoes. I, for one, don't like to be alone. I, I can't handle it. I kind of like being alone, surrounded by others. I like that. But to be alone, alone, can't handle it. It's just, I don't know if it, my experience is growing up, but to be alone, just, I, I, I panic. I, I just, I'm petrified. It's unreasonable, but I can't, I can't fix it. Uh, and that's when I hate when, like, Judy's gone. You know, not that I'm feeling deserted, but that, that feeling, that sense of aloneness. I mean, can you imagine, you know, what it must have been for Yeshua, <coughs> who, can I, I don't know if this is theologically correct, but who was never separated from God, who was never separated from his father, all of a sudden now experiences this, uh, this incredible separation. You know, I, to me, this is all, of, all that he went through, you know, the rejection of the people, the hatred of the people, the attempts to kill him, you know, the, the false accusations that were brought up to him, the trial, and even when he dies, nothing to me is, is more horrific in all of that narrative than this moment. Where he who never knew aloneness, desertion, was alone. And he did it for us. So, um, you know, then that leads into the death he cries 37 with a loud voice and gives up the ghost i don't know i guess at the same time the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom you know i've read everything that i know to read about it uh, tim haig has his own theory as to what veil this is 
it, once again, all this gets into theological complication that I just don't, my head can't deal with anymore. All I know is a veil was rent of the temple from top to bottom, which probably most say that's an unnatural, unnatural, you know, it's from the top to the bottom and evidently it gave evidence of, you know, somebody didn't vandalize the temple and do this. This was something that, you know, is supernatural and what it, what happened is so now you have this what I've called in my outline if I can find it here this this division this split of the of the of the the, the veil and I don't know you know everybody I've read said it signifies that all the new way is now uh, into uh, the presence of God through Yeshua and what he did through the veil of his flesh and that's good for me uh, but but there is this this it just seems that this line of demarcation is drawn in relation to the finality of what's going to happen and going on in the temple. <laughs> the one, the Shekinah glory is, is departed from the temple. He's departed from this earth. And as evidence of it, there's all this commotion that goes on. So much so that in 39, the centurion which, you know, I bet this isn't how he expected his day to end. This centurion, which stood over against him, saw that he so, in such a way, cried out and gave up the ghost. He said, wow, this guy is who he said he was. You know, this guy probably has salvation through this moment. I'm guessing that's my, my thought. I mean... To, to acknowledge that he was the son of God that doesn't appear to be a mockery is huge. So you have Yeshua on, on the cross. Somebody is going to be with him in paradise that day. Yeshua dies. The veil is rent. And you have this incredible testimony by this centurion of what he now finally can see. Though there's been darkness, light comes to this guy. And he sees that it was God. Yeah, this is great stuff. So then, you know, you get into this, this wonderful section that lets us know that he had some women that always stood by him. And it's the women that come to the forefront uh, in this narrative. And it's pretty cool, 40, so we have all these women, you know, they're looking on afar off. You have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, uh, James, the less and Joseph and Salome. And it tells us who also, when he was in Galilee, followed him and ministered unto him and many other women which came up with him unto Jerusalem. That's just a little, that's a cool little window into some behind the scenes stuff that we'd never know about. You know, have you ever thought, well, how did he have his needs taken care of? What did he do? Did he just go off, you know, by himself someplace and wiggle his nose and, and, and have some food? And, you know, or he goes into a parallel dimension and, and he can get, you know, I'm going crazy here. But, you know, this, this is cool to, to know that there's some human means that were involved in sustaining Yeshua, the human being. And it's these humble women that uh, come, come to the forefront right now. And so, uh, so then we go on, anyway, 42, when evening has come, there's a preparation of the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, <laughs> which is interesting, and I hope I'm remembering what I just read not too long ago. It's, it, it's, I forget where he's from. It's, we're told in another, oh, Arimathea. Duh. He's uh, from Arimathea, which I can't remember where that is, but it's a distance away. And, and whoever I was reading was saying, and it might have been a first fruit of Zion uh, going through some section. I'm not endorsing them, but I have the original version of their uh, Torah club, so I like that. But anyway, whoever I was reading was saying, you know, most likely this, this the fact that Joseph of Arimathea uh, is able to put him in a tomb because he lived not there but off somewhere else, however far that was, that this was a purposeful act on his part ahead of time to be prepared for the inevitability that he believed was going to happen. Yeshua was going to die, which to me, I just, you know, that puts a little bit more skin to all of this in the thoughtfulness because this guy, he seems to be all ready for this. You know, he's an honorable counselor. 
Um, he's, he's waiting for the kingdom of God. He, he boldly goes into the presence of Pilate and our word craved, but asked for, demands, wants the body of Yeshua. Pilate, he's just confused. He said, man, already? How can this be? And then he finds out, sure enough, he is. So uh, Joseph, when uh, gets the body given to him, verse 45, 46, and he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in the sepulcher, which was hewn out of a rock, rolled a stone into the door of the sepulcher. And here we have these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph. They, they see where he is. So now that gets us into chapter 16. Now, what's cool to me is... Um, uh, as, as they're going, so here, well, let's just read it. So it's a Sabbath that's passed. You have Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, Salome. They bought sweet spices. Early in the morning, they're going to go to the sepulcher at the rising of the sun. And so what I love here is their faith. They step out by faith because they already know there's something blocking their way. This big, huge stone. But yet they set out anyway <clears throat> they, they step out by faith to do this act of, of love for uh, uh, Yeshua, but there's an obstacle already in their mind, but yet they go, I have to say, trusting God to somehow remove the hindrance, which is this big stone. And so that's what it has. Verse 3, And they said among themselves, Who shall roll away... Uh, who shall roll us away the stone from the door of the sepulcher? Faith. That, I just love that. And for me, that's I don't always have to be able to figure everything out. That's so hard for me because I'm analytical. I like things laid out. I need to know if I take a step, it's going there. This is how it's going to work out. But the life of faith is sometimes you do have to just step out. And there are obstacles in the way, but God can take care of those obstacles for us in our life. He doesn't always choose to, but he can, as he did for these women as they set out. So they go, they enter in, they see the young man, and they say, all right, here's your mission. Go, tell his disciples and Peter that he goes before you into Galilee. You know, you know this special note, hey, make sure you tell Peter, because Peter's, you know, if you read my blog, I mean, this guy's he's, you know, he's just going through a lot right now, and uh, he needs reassurance. Now, all right, so anyway, then we get to verses 9 through 20, which is our, our doubt section. And this is kind of what I want to focus in on. <laughs> Quickly, I hope. Now, <clears throat> most of us, everybody, have been saved here a long time. This is not a trick question. I don't think of it until I get here. But when you come to Mark chapter 16, what pops up into your mind in relation to this chapter especially when you get to where we are right now? Huh? No, no, no. Uh, when, when you come to Mark 16, verse 19 on, does anything register in your heads? This, this is not, I'm not looking for a theological answer here. No? Oh, good for you then. That's good. Verses 9 through 20 are a hot, bed of controversy. Anybody know why? Yes. Whether verses 9 through 20 should be in Mark. Anybody not know this? Raise your hand. Yes. Other manuscripts. Yeah, this, this is huge. When you get into the manuscript evidence and, and the scholarly study, and most of you, if you don't have a study by, you have it. Um, good, I was going to go there. Um, most will have some sort of a note, if I can find it, in here. Uh, yes. All right. I'm going to, because I want to read this, I'm going to keep. <clears throat> this is, this, this is so diabolical, I don't even know how to, get across to us what we're dealing with here. And I'm going to try to highlight it. Verses 9 through 20. If you go to any, any study Bible, nobody has one except for Koi. If you go to have any study Bible, New American Standard, NIV, 
ESV, New Living Translation, MacArthur Study Bible, any, 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 any modern study Bible and any modern Bible of all the ones that I've just said and everything else. When you come to this passage of Scripture, there will be some disclaimer. It's kind of like when we were in college. We got this piece of paper in our books. It says, the school does not necessarily endorse all the content of this book, but you need to use it anyway. There's this disclaimer that states verses 9 through 20 most likely should not be in our Bibles. Now, when I was in college... It was probably in the mid-70s at that point, 75, 4, 5, 6. The New American Standard finally came out with, uh, it happened a little bit before this, but they came out with a finalized translation of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Prior to that, there was just a New Testament out. Now they came out with, the Old Testament and the New Testament, one Bible. So it became a big deal on college. It was announced. All the Bible professors, all the grammarians, the Hebrew teachers, the Greek teachers from the pulpits, get the New American Standard. It is the most accurate, best Bible you'll ever read. No doctrinal changes. Nothing has changed doctrinally. It's just a, 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 a easier to read translation. There's no these and thous. It comes from the latest and greatest reliable manuscripts. So we're all going out there buying the dumb thing that's flying off the bookshelves in, in the bookstore. Then you start reading it and find out, like me, who was just recently saved, comes along to these passages that all of a sudden, in the New American Standard, has brackets around it that says, you know what, big question mark here, guys. Probably should not be here. Why? Because the earliest manuscripts that we have don't have it. Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. And I hope you, I don't lose you on this. Don't sleep on me here because this is vital to our faith, whether you know it or not. Thankfully, you never went through this as I have had to go through it. But that rocked the faith of a lot of people, and I say a lot because it was a lot, in college. Because all of a sudden now, never had this before, we're doubting a whole chunk of Scripture along with some other Scriptures. And then just the, 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 the domino effect has followed us to this day. Now, what I want us to see is this. And, and, and whether... I, what verse is this? 9 through 20. Whether you're ever going to need this or not, I want you to have this information. Now, where and how did all this get started? Well, it goes back to 1881, Westcott and Hort's translation called the Revised Version. It didn't really become popular until the Bible I'm holding in my hand, that I just got from Coy, didn't really get popularized until the 1917 Schofield Study Bible came out. And Schofield wanted to have his translation with his notes based upon what Westcott and Hort did, the manuscripts. But it was too early. The populace wouldn't receive it. They knew. And it wouldn't sell. So he attached his notes to the King James Bible. But in the margin, it seems like any chance... He could, but the better manuscripts say, the better manuscripts say, the better manuscripts say. Now, you might not ever even read those in the center column. I do. It's just, I can't help it. So if you were to have a Schofield Study Bible, when you come to verse 9, their note says, this is 1917 now. The passage from verse 9 to the end is not found in the two most ancient manuscripts, the Sinaitic and Vatican. And others have it with partial omissions and variations. But, they give a nod here, it is quoted by Uranus and Hippolytus, H-I-P-P-O-L-Y-T-U-S, in the 2nd or 3rd century. So that really brought to the forefront, along with the center column notes, this crumbling of what 
where is it? What is the Word of God? Do we now rely upon verses 9 through 20, or do we just bracket it or whack it out? And so from that point on, and I, I want to chronicle this, and then we'll, we'll basically try to end with this. Now, I tried, I did the most research for me, as far, I knew this, but to just kind of pull it together just recently on this. So, <clears throat> what I want us to see is, we had a, a united, pretty much, consensus on what the Bible is. Until Westcott and Hort came to the forefront in the late 1800s, then the introduction of the Schofield Study Bible, and then you have the Revised Version, the American Standard Version, and then every version from there, there has been this line of demarcation that was never, ever, ever there. For how long, you ask? I'm going to tell you. Now, this is diabolical. When I use that word, I mean it's of the devil. And we need to be aware of this because if you're not thinking about it, you're going to probably at some point, especially if we get more people coming to our congregation using different translations, which is okay, but what's going to come up is, well, wait a minute, it's not there in my Bible. We need to know, well, how come, why? It's sad we have to because for a long time, we didn't, nobody had to worry about that. Now, following me so far? Am I staying close? All right. <clears throat> now, what I want us to see that at a moment in time, something happened. How long it had been until that something happened, and that something that happened is, has maintained ascendancy since then, and, and what was before that something that happened is, was pretty much tossed away. Now, what, what I find interesting, I have this thing uh, on the Texas Receptus Bibles, it's, and, and it, it will parallel translations that relied upon these ancient manuscripts that actually go back to the old Latin and Syriac originals of, from 100 to 200 AD. It was, these were, were, were the, the manuscripts from which the, the, the Waldensians, the, the Donatists, the Gauls, the Celts from 120 to 1400 AD relied upon. The Wal if you don't know about the Waldensians, they're, they're the most popular. These guys, these people died. Thousands of them died for their faith. Okay? They used... The Bible that they use was based upon the manuscripts of the Bible that we use. Now that goes back to, according to my source here, um, 120 to roughly 1400, their existence period. Now, but even laying that aside, tangibly, where can we see evidence of how far back from 1881 do all manuscripts, and I'm just considering now Mark, translations, English translations, how many of them have it and how far back? Because now, Mark 9 through 20, or whatever it is, since 1917, 1900s, has been in question in how long has that been. So this is fascinating to me. All right, now, if you take this parallel Bible that I'm, I'm telling you about, <clears throat> you can go back to 1175, 1175, okay, it's, it's called the Wessex Gospels, 1175. From there forward, the next step is the Wycliffe Bible, 1382, Tyndale Bible, 1534, Coverdale Bible, 1535, Matthew's Bible, 1537, the Great Bible, 1539, Geneva Bible, 1560, the Bishop's Bible, 1568, then you hit the King James. And then what's also interesting, if you even use the Young's literal translation of 1862, which I don't think the Young's later ones have changed, but maybe they have, but all I know is there is a new Young's out there, but I don't know about what they've done. So you go from 1175 to, to the 1900s. You know how many years that is? 
I will tell you. It is 725 years of recorded history of every Bible of the family of manuscripts that we adhere to, not the Alexandrian, which is West Continent Hort, uh, but the, um, the ones that we follow, uh, the Antioch manuscripts. <laughs> um, from 1175 to 1900, every major translation had no brackets, no notes, saying anything about Mark 16, 9 through 20. But all of a sudden, in the 1800s, you get this big change. And so what happens now is all modern translations, because all come from that pretty much the Alexandrian family manuscripts, there's none. Well, that's not quite exactly true. There's, there's a minute amount of that, that still follow the Antioch manuscripts from which we get the King James Bible. So you have from 1900 to 2000, where are we? 18. The, the, to me, this is just so staggering. And I don't know what you want to do with it. Why? 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 Why were our scholars so eager to jettison 725 years for something that comes up by these two scholars, Westcott and Hort, that were just, if you've read any, they're dubious at best. But everyone since then, and so now we have a gazillion translations, And, and because we live in our own little bubble of a world and not, we're not confronted with it, we don't realize the impact because you go to any congregation, anywhere, church, and probably Messianic, it would be in ours, you'd have a handful of translations all over the place. I grew up at a time when you didn't even have to think about that. And since that period of 1900 on, I'm saying our individual faith, to whatever degree we're aware of it, has suffered. Where do you find the Word of God? What is the Word of God? Is the New American Standard the Word of God? Is it the, the English Standard Version, which is from the Revised Version or Revised Standard Version, and the English Standard Version knocked off the throne, the New American Standard, which was the best and the greatest, and every pulpit used it, all these big-name guys. And then the ESV comes out. It's even better. It's even better than the New American Standard. And they just throw that one. Now we're on the ESV kick. How many... Editions of the ESV, how many changes have already been made in that? How many changes have been made in the New American Standard editions? You have the New King James, how many changes have been in the editions? The, the, the uh, uh, NIV, that all the changes. Change after, there's no stable Bible anywhere anymore. Nowhere to be found. Nowhere. To me, this is bad news. How many editions of a translation do you need to put out to get it right in a short span of 20, 30 years? And they jump all over to King James. Oh, it's had changes. Well, when was the last one? Maybe, and it was mostly grammatical. 1760, okay, let's say, yes, it was changed to 1760. Just not major revision, or, but go from 1760 to now. It's a long time. So... There is no stable Bible, no consistent Bible. You could buy, I have the 25th anniversary edition of the NIV. Buy one today, it's not going to look the same. I had a relatively new edition, <coughs> I didn't even consider the thought, when I got my new King James, which is supposed to be everything, I won't get into that. 
And then all of a sudden, and I've mentioned this, a fellow in our congregation who had a beautiful leather Ryrie study Bible. Uh, was it Ryrie? No, MacArthur. I, I think it was Ryrie. Anyway, no, MacArthur. I can't remember. Beautiful leather, just, just you know, that kind of just flops. He had it, didn't use it, gives it to me. I said, awesome. Now I'm, up, I'm reading it. I'm up there in the pulpit, and it's like, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, don't, I think mine reads differently. It had only taken a few years for changes to be made into that. I can't live with that kind of instability. I cannot handle that. And subconsciously and subliminally, I believe Satan planted the seed of, yea, hath God said. And I, to this day, since 1975, will say, cannot come to Mark without a little bit of fear and trembling. Is it supposed to be there or not? And I resent that. I resent it. I resent what our scholars have done. I resent what even our Messianic scholars have done. Hague is still on the New American Standard. When's he going to bop over to the English Standard Version? <clears throat> to me, this is huge. Why? Why? Because Satan is no dummy. He knows there's going to be a proliferation of of ways to get the Bible out. There's, there's hundreds of translations. There's easy means to get it out. And he's disseminating a false seed that does not produce a, the stable faith it should because it's not from the faithful translation manuscripts of the Word of God that go back to 8100, but at least we can go from 1175 on 785 years. I can't throw that away. I refuse. And what got me back to the King James was, it's been around how many years now? 400 years plus? If God's that bad of taking care of his word, I don't even want God. What a confused God we have. If, if you were to pen something, and disseminate it to your followers, but then next week you say, I, "Wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, I don't know. I, was, I don't know how this got by me, but that shouldn't have been there. This should have been there." And then a year later, you do it again. Who who's going to have confidence in you? This is just plain logic. And I'm here to say I had lost my confidence in the Word of God from that period on in the mid '70s until I finally said, "Wait a minute." Either I have to believe I have a capricious God who lost control of his word that he said he gave us, and if that is who he is, I'm done with him. And I made this conscious decision. It was, it was back, it started really back when I was still at our church. I, I'm not going to serve a God like that. Um, can't happen. Or, well, wait a minute. This has been around 400 years. See, we can't even fathom 400 years. Our mind can't do that. We can't fathom 785 years. And that, this Bible that we used, I personally believe God has blessed because it was what God used to spread his truth throughout all the world before missionary activity started to be shut down by other countries. We can't just go anywhere anymore. You, you can't be a Hudson Taylor or an Adonai or Judson anymore. You can't be these guys that could just say, you know what, I'm going to go there. Yep. It's not going to happen. Well, God knew there would be a shutdown. He gets the gospel out around the world by a faulty translation that somehow he, he, he lost uh, control of. No, I can't believe that. So what am I trying to say? The same faith that those ladies had that started out and said, yeah, there's a big rock in the way. There's no way we're going to be able to move it, but we're going anyway. Because my God is in charge, he's in control, and he'll take care of it for us. We're stepping out by faith. He'll solidify our faith and act on our behalf. It's the same faith we have to have today in the Word of God. To me, that's why... This book is alive, because, and, and I have to be in it because it's a big battleground. If so much activity 
has been hurled at its destruction, I want to know it. Because it must be important. If something's not important, everybody's going to just leave it alone. Everybody hates the King James. You, you, you say you're a King James follower, you are considered to be an idiot, a non-intellectual, almost near that because you're not enlightened. Faith, to believe that God is on the throne, His word is super important to Him. All those thousands of people who died and whose, whose faith uh, caused them to be martyred for a faulty Bible? I will not accept that ever. Never, 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 never. What kind of God is that that has people go to their death basing their life upon a book that he just kind of forgot to maintain? God doesn't have a house. You know, you drive by the, down the road and you see these houses that are just falling apart. That's not how God maintains his house. That's not how God maintains his word. He doesn't let it crumble and fall apart and help. I need you poor people down there on earth to please rescue it, find it, get it, somehow collate it. You know what I was told? In all the translations that are there and all the manuscripts that are this back in college, the word of God is kept intact. What kind of answer is that? You can't find it anywhere? It's nowhere to be found? <sighs> all right, I'm reading and Raven. But I want us to realize the treasure that we don't even think about, that we hold in our laps and in our hands. This book that God has preserved. And, and I'm going to tell you this, based on trends. Have you, you've, some of you live long enough to where I, I grew up through the hippie age. That was kind of cool. Well, the hippie age kind of got cool again there for a little while. There's nothing new under the sun. Everything cycles. Something is big and fun and fabulous, and then after a while, it just becomes old. And people then look for change, which lots of times is it goes backwards. And we just rehash the same thing all over again. I'm, I'm telling you, this is just me. I've not heard it from anybody. It could be totally wrong. But I, I do believe for those people whose hearts God is trying to get are going to wrestle with this issue, and I, I think, I want to believe, we're going to see a resurgence of trust in the manuscripts of our Bible. And it was interesting because I had one of the earlier New King James that came out. If you would read the prefaces and everything, they said that's what has started to happen. Prior to their effort to do this, and I'm not endorsing the New King James, but it's better than a lot. They said, listen, they said, uh, 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 um, scholarly uh, pursuit has been going in one direction, but there are now scholars, there are now people studying into this that do not walk that line anymore and believing the Alexandrian manuscripts are best. There's a resurgence moving back to realizing based upon new evidence that we can find, new study that, that the book we hold in our hand that we call the King James is the Word of God, and we can rest in that. Now, I want to say um, this is not a message on endorsing the King James. This is a message on endorsing the family of manuscripts that from 1125 or whatever it was I looked at up until 1611, this, this is, is, is an argument of uh, not for the King James, but it's an argument for that family of manuscripts. And I want our faith to be secure in something, a book. That's the only thing that we can rest upon. It's our, we're basing our eternities on this book we casually hold in our laps, and we don't know the battle that has been raged since the Garden of Eden to this day, and we're not engaged. I think there's a blindness over us. Um, and I want us to come and realize when we hold this book in our hand, this is, this is special. This is God expressing himself to us, and we can trust it, that he is watching over it, maintaining it. He, he's maintaining his house along the side of the road, and it's not falling apart. Let's pray. Anyway, Father, 
a long ways to go from where we started in this message, but it's where it ends up for me. The disciples had doubt. When we get to, to uh, verse 9, it just seems like there's this doubt. They don't believe. They don't believe Yeshua is risen. And I just find it interesting, Father, that, that this passage that, that seems to be written a little bit with, with doubt upon whether the Word was alive is, 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 is the same passage of Scripture that casts doubt on whether that part is the Word. I, I just find that. I don't think it's a coincidence, Father. And uh, I pray, I don't know if this has been helpful to anybody, but I, I ask that you just help us, if nothing else, to realize what a great God you are. You've preserved your word. There's a battle going on ever since the garden. And we're supposed to be engaged, at least know what it is we believe and why, and be willing to defend it. And uh, I just appreciate what you've done in my heart. It took a lot of years from those years in school, or my faith was almost shattered. But I thank you, Father, that somehow supernaturally, uh, and I appreciate people like Lester Roloff that, that never capitulated, that stood strong in the battle, um, and his life and others, the fruit of their life showed that they were somehow sucking their nourishment from a, a valid, pure source. So, Father, help us to go forward for you, strengthened by the faith that we have, in your word, in Yeshua's name, amen. Hey, mighty warriors arise, yeah. Freedom does not me away. The soon is the day when we see your face on the mount of your grace and Oh, 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 oh.